Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week we managed to find another Flying Grayson. It's episode 195 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. That's right. We survived Winter Storm Grayson. Well, at least that's what the Weather Channel called it or anything. You had to make a Nightwing joke or two after that. And, you know, we survived it. You know, it wasn't the easiest thing. You know, here in Virginia Beach, Virginia, we don't handle snow well. That's where our home base operation is. But everything was fine on our end and got a great show for you this week. Jade Taylor from The Magicians is going to be stopping by to be talking about Season 3, which is going to be coming up on Wednesday, January the 10th. You know how much we love The Magicians on this show. Can't wait to talk to her about everything that Katie has in store for her for this upcoming season. Yeah, we're going to ask her about her and Penny. Don't worry about that. Plenty more coming up as well. We're going to talk some X-Files. And you know we have two new comics to review, so let's get to it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Artis Ficosio, artist of Revolutionaries, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Grab the laptop, the tablet, or that long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading, and when you hear that Batman has a new villain, you can't resist it, right? So we're going to talk about Batman number 38 this week from DC Comics and the great Tom King, who's still writing it and doing an amazing job. Travis Moore doing the art. Julia Brusco doing the colors and Clayton Cowles doing the letters. Great cover as well by Tim Sale and Dave Stewart. And I say that Batman's getting a new villain. I'm sure you've seen the story pop up all over social media. And the story's actually called The Origin of Bruce Wayne. And I know we like to go... Spoiler free in these reviews, but I have to kind of give you a little bit. And the book is out. I certainly don't want to spoil any major things for you, but I have to give you a little bit. Basically, Bruce Wayne is looking at another kid that has had almost the same thing happen to him that happened to Bruce Wayne with his parents dying. And he has a butler. He has some cash as well. This kid does. And Bruce is trying to kind of guide him in the right direction. But Also, we have the side story of there's murders of couples that are going on, and there's a certain Batman villain that you will know that Bruce thinks is the one that's actually doing these killings, but something doesn't quite add up. And again, that's something I will not spoil for you. I want you to see who it is and what the circumstances are. And then there's another finger that gets pointed to for another villain, and it's one of those things where basically the book you're trying to figure out it's it's a who done it in a sense, but it's not as corny as it sounds. It's it, you're trying to find out who was responsible for this, and all the while you have the backstory of this kid and thing and things that are happening to him, and then something else happens to this to this kid throughout the issue because of something that Batman discovers. Now, keeping in mind that the kid doesn't know that Batman and Bruce Wayne are the same person, that is a connection that isn't made, and that is one thing I definitely can tell you about this story, but once you find out who the new villain is, and we don't really have a name per se, and I don't want to tell you what I think the name is going to be because that will, that will again, that will spoil it. So I want you to read this book because obviously another great story from Tom King and the, the emotion and the vibe of this book, I will say this is the first time in a while that I read a Batman book and I was legitimately uncomfortable. And that is something that is a, 
a, a wink and a nod to Tom King because it's amazing because it seems like every time Tom writes a Batman story, you get a different emotion out of it. And it's the evolution of the character since Tom has taken over is really, really interesting because I don't feel like I'm getting the same thing. You're still getting Batman in his purest sense and maybe the most grounded Batman ever. But you're also getting something a little bit different each time. So I don't feel like I'm, even though some of the villains are the same, sometimes you see some familiar faces, I don't feel like I'm getting the same thing a lot. And it seems like things are different with every arc. And and that's another thing. We've got a different artist usually for each book as well. And we've seen some artists that have worked with Tom in the past. But we also now see Travis Moore, who did a fantastic job in this issue. In this issue. If you're not familiar with Travis Moore's work, I mean, just the insane detail on the character faces and subtle little changes, especially when you're talking about the kid in this particular story. When you're looking at him and everything that he's going through, and it's just these subtle changes in facial expressions, and and in the last couple of pages of this book especially, it really rings true. And I I also have to give a shout-out to Julia Brusco, who really brings out some great colors in the shading and the inks by Travis Moore as well. They really complement each other well, especially when you have those. There's a couple of uh, panels where it's Bruce and Selena together. And the shading on, on that is just absolutely incredible. And the colors bring through that as well. Just such an amazing job throughout. And I just feel like this might be the best run of Batman we've had in a long time. I think it's a little heavy-handed, to say ever, and I will say that Scott Snyder did an amazing job as well in a different way, and I still love Scott's Batman, but this, the Batman that Scott Snyder wrote and the Batman that's being written by Tom King are so so vastly different and cool in their own ways. I almost feel like it's not fair to compare the two, so keep reading Batman. I cannot wait to see where the rest of this story goes from Tom King, but that's you know nothing new on this show. Something that is new, and actually a story we kind of broke from the first strike panel at San Diego Comic-Con, was that Visionaries were going to be coming to IDW, and they are finally here. It's Transformers versus Visionaries, number one from IDW Publishing, and Mags Visaggio. Mags, I, I know that maybe we're not on that basis yet, because I met Mags at a, at a con, actually it was this past year, and didn't get a chance to talk to her a whole lot, but then I was like, if I ever... Have to review one of her books. I'm going to butcher her first name, so that's why I'm just calling her Mags. I hope you don't mind that, Mags. And we have Fico Asio, who we love as well, doing the art on this book. David Garcia Cruz on the colors, and Gilberto Lansco on the letters. Now, basically what we have here, if you didn't read First Strike or any of the tie-ins that are involved in First Strike, it would be helpful. You You don't necessarily have to read First Strike. Of course, I recommend it because it was a good run and the tie-ins as well. But it would certainly help to find out where you're at with the visionaries here. And, of course, Prismos being back and who Merklin is, especially if you're not familiar with visionaries or anything like that. It would certainly help, but you don't absolutely have to. And, of course, you have, again, something that I kind of have to spoil here is that Prismos is kind of a refugee camp now on Cybertron. And what you have is you have a couple of Transformers in Cup and Ironhide who are kind of brokering like the the terms of the conditions of the visionaries living where they're living which it's a very interesting dynamic and then you have the visionaries kind of trying to pick up their pieces and thinking maybe they deserve better and again I don't want to go into too great a detail here because I don't want to spoil some parts of this book but you can tell that there's a tension there 
And and you gotta love Cup. Cup's been around for a while, and there's just this easiness about that character that I that I really really love. And pairing him with Ironhide in this book is really cool. Now there is an incident that happens with one of the other Transformers that are that are part of this book. You've got four Transformers that are in this book, and there's something that happens that's fairly significant that really changes these negotiations. Not that they weren't tense enough already, but you, you have to understand where they're at. And, you know, when you go from being an all magical power to kind of refugees, you kind of understand why they would be a little upset and how they see things are not necessarily how the Transformers see things. And it, there's, there's some undertones there to stuff that's going on in our society. It's very subtle, but I really like the way that Mag's kind of brought this in and how it's presented in this book. And it's not exactly that, but, you know, there's a wink and a nod to it for sure. But then... I'm sure you've seen the story, again, that we lost a Transformer in this issue. A very important name, a fan favorite, and you probably know who it is by me saying that, but I don't want to spoil it just in case you don't know. Because maybe there's a favorite of yours that's in this book, and you think it's that Transformer, and it's not. So I certainly don't want to to blow the lead for you on that. But I will say that I, I kind of thought I knew who it was, and then I started to doubt it a little bit, and then I turned it out turned out being un, uh, right in the end, but it just, it hit me hard. It really, really did as a Transformers fan, not just the, the, the series, but the comics as well. Th- this is one that you didn't want to see it end. I, I, I guess you never really do for certain characters, but this one was, was definitely a character that I was sad to see go, but I mean, it's a catalyst. For this book going forward and for the visionaries entering this realm of the Hasbro verse and finally getting them into the mix here because this is a wow moment. And this is the reason you go out and get a guy like Fico Asio doing the art because as amazing as he was during Revolution and Revolutionaries, the way he can bring pages and panels to life and important moments like this one in a book like this, this is why you have somebody like Fico Asio drawing your book. And, you know, as, as great as Fico is and as, as good as he can juggling certain characters and making these moments matter, and I love Fico drawing any Transformers. I really, really do. He has such a knack for it. And him bringing the visionaries to life was absolutely the right call. And I can't wait to see where the talisman is going to come into play because we did see that was part of one of the big moments in this book. It had to do with the talisman. So we know that something is happening. We just don't know why or how that is actually going to come to pass. We do think we know who was responsible for it, though, in this first issue. I I knew I'd be all in on this, and I was definitely not disappointed. This was a poll for me, Transformers versus Visionaries. Another Hasbro hit from IDW. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Going to dive into the premiere of the X-Files Season 11. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The truth is still out there, but maybe for the final time. It's time for my spoiler-filled review of the X-Files Season 11 premiere, which kind of picks up right after the event series of a couple years ago left off. And it very much involves... Scully and her visions that she's having now ever since that encounter that happened there at the end of that event series. And it has to do, again, spoilers from here on out. 
you have been warned fully because there's going to be a lot of them. And this has to do with their son, hers, son with Mulder, which is William, and how special he is. But I will get back to Mulder and Scully's son here in a few minutes because there's a huge callback to earlier on in the series that, that, that I will definitely get to. But of course, this also revolves around the cigarette smoking man. Of course, we know that that's Mulder's father, and that was a, a big revelation. And trying to find this boy is basically the centerpiece of everything that's going on right now in the story. But but Scully is in a bad state right now. She she passes out at one point, and, and you think because you heard all those stories, right? The Jillian Anderson, she says this is it for her. She's not going to be playing Scully after this, even if the X Files comes back. She won't be coming back. So you think you know? Are they really going to kill her off? In the first episode, and of course they don't, because, you know, that would be kind of silly to do in the first episode. But she sees this bleak vision, and Mulder's dying, and all this other stuff's going on, and she says something about an alien pathogen that's going to be released, and it's going to kind of cleanse the earth. And she says to Mulder, you need to find the cigarette-smoking man. So you've got Mulder, and you've also got Skinner that's involved in this as well, but we'll get to his little role here in just a second. And Mulder follows this person that was following him. I didn't know Fox Mulder was so good driving a vehicle. I mean, I don't, I don't remember now. I don't remember every episode of the X Files vividly, but I do not remember David Duchovny being so great behind the wheel because there's a chase scene which I did also did not expect in an X Files show that was pretty good. I didn't know Mulder had it in him and a pretty slick car to boot. So he ends up turning the tables, following that person. And we find out, well, these people that he finds in South Carolina, they're looking for the boys. Well, they're trying to stop the cigarette smoking man, but it seems like they've got their own issues and they've got their own agenda. Of course, we see one of them try to kill Scully at one point. So, I I mean, there's that. So it seems like it's coming at them from all angles and everything leads back to William. And we find out that William... And Scully have this interesting connection. It's I don't want to say psychic connection yet, because it seems that way, and it seems like m- maybe this is a vision or dream sequence kind of thing. But it, I don't think it's been fully explained yet, so I don't want to go ahead and go there. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but there's no connection like that to Mulder. I can tell you that right now. But the love between Mulder and Scully really comes through here, and their relationship. Well, it's not like the classic love story. You could just tell that he'd do anything for her, and there's something to be said for that. And there's just something that feels so right about it and seeing them together. So if this show does go on without Scully, I think it's going to be a little weird even if David Duchovny comes back. Kind of like when David Duchovny left the show before, and it just didn't feel right until he came back. But let's get back to it a little bit here. Because the whole... And then you get back to the whole cigarette-smoking man. We see him, and we see he's got this plan... He's the one that's going to be responsible for this alien pathogen. He wants to cleanse the earth, kind of do a reboot on the earth. So apparently he's a Hollywood executive in his spare time. He just likes to reboot things. And he's decided to go to the biggest project of all, and that's the earth. And he's going to use this alien pathogen to do it. But what I didn't expect was for him to involve Skinner in this. And we think that Skinner's going to get the drop on him, right? And he's finally going to take him down. But again, first episode, so you don't really think it's going to happen. And then you find out a couple of things. First of all, he wants Skinner to help him find the boy and kind of betray Mulder and Scully. And Mulder was on that immediately when he saw Skinner. He smells the smoke and he kind of knows what's going on a little bit. And Skinner, there's kind of a weak kind of shoving fight between the two of them. It was a little weird for me because it just didn't feel right for some reason. You know, they kind of grapple 
like they do in professional wrestling or they used to do in the back of the day where you'd lock up in the very beginning of the match. That's kind of what it felt like to me, and then everybody pushes away. It was just kind of bizarre, and I'm not sure it really had the impact that it should have. But you find out that he's helping him because it's going to, he says, the cigarette smoking man says to Skinner that it's going to help save Scully and that he cares about her. Here's the bombshell, though, that I want to talk about. The fact that William is not Mulder's son. That's the cigarette smoking man's son. And we see a flashback of how he impregnates Scully when she's like passed out or something. And I don't know what you want to call that. Label it what you will. They don't really get too specific. But this happened in an episode eons ago. And it was a callback to that episode. And they even show you the portion of the episode that happened. I don't have the exact you know title and season or anything like that. I mean, you want to IMDB it, feel free. But let's focus on the important thing here. Is that Mulder now does not have a son with Scully. If anything, that's his brother. And that's weird. It's just, it creates a weird creepy kind of vibe and a bombshell that once it gets dropped on Mulder, I don't know how he's going to deal with that. That's going to be really interesting. We're all, we're already finding out how Scully is trying to deal with the fact that people are after her son. And she's been warned a thousand times about this. She even tries to push it and almost injures herself to the point of no return again. So Scully almost dies twice in this episode, but it all centers around William. And we kind of get to see him, I think a little bit there at the end. And we find out this, this connection is kind of, weighing them both down. But William is the key to this whole thing to either stopping it or helping it go forward. And we really don't know which side he's on yet. That's the interesting part here. And one thing I will say about this and a lot of criticism the show seems to be getting is this doesn't feel like a classic X-Files vibe. And I will totally agree with that. This does not feel as much like the X-Files as I would like it to. Although I don't really think the event series did either. Maybe a little bit when they first brought it back. But this one really kind of doesn't. It it definitely feels like more of a thriller. And there is a mystery there, but not quite. It doesn't just feel quite the same. It's This is very much a, you have to really care about these characters to really get into what's going on here. So if you just love Mulder and Scully, if you love or hate Skinner and the cigarette smoking man, then you won't be disappointed at all. I mean, you will be locked into this and you will stick through to the end, I'm sure. But if this is one of those things where you're a casual fan and you're you're tuning into the X-Files because you think you're going to get, you know, alien conspiracy theories and stuff like that. They even kind of use the word conspiracy or double conspiracy a couple times. And I guess it is, but it just doesn't feel like that or not in the traditional X-Files sense anyway. I'm not saying that there has to be alien here, alien there, alien everywhere for it to be X-Files. But it just didn't feel as science fiction as I thought I would have liked it to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing or a criticism. So all in all, I think I'm going to stick with this for sure. Being an X-Files fan, anyway, I'd like to see how this ends up. But I will say this is not something that's going to be appointment viewing for me either. This is not something that I'm going to make sure I'm home to see this. If I catch it later on a DVR or Hulu or something like that, I'll be okay with that. But while I did enjoy it, I want to see where Robbie Amell and his partner are going to go with this as well because we do see them for a hot minute in this. So we know they're going to play a role. There's enough there to keep me interested, and that could certainly build in the next couple of episodes. I know that I think they're only running six again. 
So this is certainly something that could build for me to for it to be appointment viewing, but right now I'm kind of lukewarm on the revival of the X-Files. Up next, you've been waiting for it. It's the return of nerd news here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, what's up? This is writer Sam Humphries, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Look out, because there's a new sheriff in town. It's time for nerd news. And I say that because Warner Brothers has announced, according to Variety, there is a new head of DC Films, and it's Walter Hamada, who's going to serve as president of production, if that name sounds familiar. He was a production executive at New Line and oversaw the It movie and the Conjuring, a lot of the horror stuff. And he's also going to oversee comic book movies outside of DC Comics property. So that's kind of an interesting little twist. It's going to be business as usual. Jeff Johns will stick around at DC Films. Everybody else going to kind of stay on the role that's already been announced for them before this. But, I mean, this to me is clearly a case of, okay, this guy had a lot of success doing what he was doing. It was a major, major smash hit for Warner Brothers. So they figured, why not give him a crack at the comic books universe. And this guy clearly has a good resume. He was with Columbia and, and there was another place that he was with early on in his career. So it's not like he has no idea what he's doing here. So I think that this is just, it's it's clearly a sense of this guy was, was very successful in our horror genre. Let's see if that carries over to the comic book genre. And it's not like there aren't any similarities there either. And he has a, a connection to James Wan as well, who's doing the Aquaman movie. So it just seems like this this kind of makes sense, and, and at least give him a shot, right? And it's not like Jeff Johns is going nowhere. He's still going to be there and giving his input as well. So I'm pretty comfortable with this move. I think it's also interesting that they mentioned comic book properties that are not DC Comics related because we haven't really heard a whole lot about Warner Brothers doing comic book properties outside of DC. So is there maybe an announcement coming there at some point? maybe with another comic book publisher or maybe just in general, they're just going to do certain comic book movies. I think that's a very interesting thing to talk about as well. You look at Boom Studios and their deal that they have with 20th Century Fox and then Boom gets purchased, excuse me, Fox gets purchased by Disney. And what, what happens with that deal? We haven't really heard a whole lot about that. So maybe that's another home for Boom Studios if that deal is null and void with this new Disney and Fox deal. So we'll have to see what happens there. Maybe not them specifically, but that's just something that sort of popped into my head. I think this that this is a good move. You've got somebody with a proven track record recently that seems to be able to get the job done, and let's see if Walter can turn things around at DC Films. Speaking of that Disney and Fox deal, Fox has announced their post-Disney purchasing plans for their broadcast network. Remember, the broadcast network itself and Fox Sports and Fox News were not part of the Disney deal. So executives have said that the new Fox network will be called New Fox for now and will kind of be business as usual, but the network will be 80% live programming and sports, which is definitely different. I mean, if you've watched the Fox Network now, there's a lot of syndicated programming on there, you know, shows about judges and stuff like that and and talk shows. And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves after this deal is finalized. And it was also said by one of the executives that this gives Warner Brothers and Sony a home for their shows because they are going to continue entertainment programming as well so that means shows like gotham are safe at fox that means lucifer's safe and we could see warner brothers actually give a little bit more as far as homes for their shows on the fox network like take blind spot for example which is a warner brothers show 
if Blindspot ends up get can- getting canceled by NBC, there's a potential home there with Fox. So Fox is kind of op- opening its arms to Sony and Warner Brothers saying, hey, we're here if you want us sort of thing. And then we also have the added interest that Fox just renewed The Gifted for a second season. Well-deserved, too, by the way. The Gifted has been amazing. But here's the funny thing about that is that everybody just assumed when this Disney-Fox deal happened with Disney acquiring the X-Men that The Gifted would just move to ABC or a different network, right? Well, that's not going to happen now. And and maybe I actually thought FX would be a good home for The Gifted because FX was part of the Disney deal. and But that's not happening. It's going to remain on Fox. The exact details of how that's going to work exactly haven't really been ironed out. You know, then you think, are there going to be crossovers with maybe Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or something like that? It doesn't look like that's going to happen right now. So we'll have to find out what happens with the gift. But for right now, this is a good move, I think, by Fox and opening their arms to other production companies, that especially Warner Brothers, who's maybe the top competitor for for Disney in the in the TV market, I think that that's really smart, and and it's also it also could be Fox saying, hey, if things don't work out the CW, we're here because they're clearly not afraid of comic book properties. Fans are not afraid of the Nintendo Switch either, apparently, because Nintendo just announced, and I mean, you can look up these sales figures. It's not like they're they're propping up something that's not true. That the Nintendo Switch is the fastest selling console in U.S. history. Which seems kind of hard to believe, right? It's it's sold 4.8 million units in 10 months, according to these sales figures. Now, take that for what it's worth, because the last record holder was the Nintendo Wii, which sold 4 million units in that time. So, I mean, you could chalk this up to a fad, maybe. It's, it's one of those first-year luck-of-the-draw type things, maybe. But, I mean, think about it. It's a console that you could take with you easily okay and this is not an ad for the nintendo switch either by the way i'm just i'm just trying to play devil's advocate here and that this is a console that you know when you have to leave your house you want to keep playing the game that you're playing you actually have that option i know that microsoft kind of gives you that option if you have windows 10 machine and i know the playstation's got some portability as well but it's not easy it's not as easy as it is for the Nintendo Switch. It's just that simple. And it's not like they have no games. I mean, there's 300 games that are created by third-party developers alone, and that's not even counting the games that Nintendo's making on their own. And Super Mario Odyssey, clearly a hit for them. Sold a lot of units. Also, Zelda Breath of the Wild, that that's clearly been a success and an award winner for them. So you know that's a franchise that's only going to continue. And I've been saying this for a while now. Nintendo might be back. Look at what they did at E3. They had their strongest E3, you could argue, maybe ever. I mean, you want to go back for with E3 and, and prove me wrong with, with something else. I mean, that that's fine. I think that after mailing it in in E3 for previous years, this past year, they went all in on E3 and won E3. And they're showing gamers that they're serious again about not just family games and and their 3DS games, but they're serious about getting into the console wars again. And I know that worldwide numbers certainly favor Sony's PlayStation and, and the PS4, and I don't blame them. It's a great console as well, and it's probably the console that if I had the money right now, I'd go out and grab. But you've got to give Nintendo their due at this point in that they have made a giant step forward. And if I'm Xbox, actually, I'm quaking in my boots a little bit because Xbox is sitting here, they've been trying so hard to catch Sony and PlayStation that they haven't even really noticed that, hey, uh, 
Nintendo's got some good stuff going on here, and they're starting to get some legit titles like Doom and Wolfenstein and stuff like that. So maybe Microsoft should be looking in their rearview mirror a little bit here too. And I'm not saying that they're not trying, but they've clearly been losing this console war. And if they're not careful, they're going to end up in third place. And imagine what kind of a shakeup is going to happen there at Microsoft if they end up going even further behind Nintendo and that much further behind Sony as well. And can Sony and can Nintendo ever catch Sony and the PS4? Probably not because graphics wise, I think the PS4 is always going to be superior in whatever they decide to do after that. And the catalog of games for adults is clearly way ahead for them as well. So I'm not sure that Nintendo internationally can actually catch Sony and, and, and maybe if if Sony had a new console going up against the Switch this wouldn't even be a story and wouldn't even be a contest I understand that but for now the kid in me and the the nostalgic gamer in me can't help but be very very thrilled that Nintendo's doing some really great things it seems to be doing things right and that that success is absolutely paying off because it means we're only going to get that much better stuff in the future. Before we move on, a couple of quick hits here. Game of Thrones is going to be returning in 2019 with six episodes. I know you don't think that's enough. I understand. And don't forget, we have the spinoffs and stuff and the prequels coming out. So it's not like this will be the end of Game of Thrones forever. And we are, are going to be waiting a while. Sophie Turner was right, by the way. Everybody kind of pushed to the side and like, ah, just creating headlines. She's not, she's not sure. Well, she was sure because she ended up being right. So thanks, Sophie Turner, for that early heads up, even though nobody seemed to believe leave you except me also good news for boom studios they've upped fence with cs picat of course we had on the show not too long ago her series about fencing called fence is going to be an ongoing series now the only kind of caveat to this is that issue five is going to be pushed to april but that's to coincide with the release of the volume one trade so you can pick up the trade and issue five on the same day if you're not reading fence yet and you can go back to our interview with C.S. Picat, if you have not gotten a chance to listen to that yet, the Fence comic is a good comic. It's very interesting. I know you're thinking, fencing? Eh, you know, I don't really like fencing. You don't even have to like fencing to, to read this book because it is very much a young adult drama book. It's episode 189 that you can go back to. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Hear the interview for yourself because it is a good book. And finally, we have Animaniacs getting a two-season order at Hulu, and Hulu wasn't done there, also renewing Runaways for a second season. That shouldn't be a surprise. They clearly have a lot of faith in this Animaniacs reboot, though, getting a two-season order before one episode is has even aired. So I know Animaniacs fans are excited or really, really cautious. It seems like there's no one way or the other. You're either really excited about it or really nervous about it because at the end of the day, it's still a reboot, and you still don't know. And it's not like Hulu has a great track record with the animated programming. It's not like they've put out a lot of animated hits already. So, And I'm not saying that they won't do a good job. I'm just saying that this isn't really their wheelhouse right now. And maybe this is a little bit of a risk. So we'll have to see how that works out for them. That's going to do for Nerd News this week. Up next, you know I'm excited that The Magicians is coming back on Wednesday, January the 12th. 10th at 9 p.m. on Sci-Fi. Time to talk about it with Jay Taylor, who plays Katie. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
I can't even measure our excitement for the magicians coming back on Wednesday, January the 10th. And one of the best parts of season two for me was this lady right here. It's Jade Taylor who plays Katie on the magicians. How you doing, Jade? Ah, thank you. I'm great. How you doing? Pretty darn good, especially very excited about season three. But before we talk about that, let's talk about season two for just a second. So since so many fans are discovering the show on Netflix right now, one of my favorite parts. Yeah, yeah, one of my favorite parts of the last season was the relationship between Katie and Julia, actually. So did that just kind of feel right having the two, I mean, for lack of a better word, outcasts kind of come together? (laughs) Yeah, actually, it did. Yeah, because, you know, and different as they are, there was a very a similarity to, to the both of them because they were outcasts and they, um, I think they, they had to deal with a lot more than some of the other characters. And so I think they bonded over that. And because there was a sense of, or an unwillingness to be vulnerable with people. And I think they, they understood each other because of that and became, you know, really close, but also, you know, as these well, for those who haven't seen it, I apologize. I'm ruining it. But for the in, in the end, watching them, their relationship sort of fall apart again, I think it made it that much more heartbreaking. Absolutely. And you posted something on Instagram the other day that I thought was pretty relevant. I wanted to talk about it for a second. You you were it was kind sure. of a question of what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail. And there was one specific statement that you made in in that great post that I thought kind of related to Katie and her exit from break bills, and that was. And I'm going to quote you on this. Oftentimes we call things failures if we don't meet our own limited expectations. So do you feel like Katie had that redeeming moment in season two where a perceived failure was actually a triumph? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think that's the beauty of Katie is that, you know, there's she's continuously dealing with hardships and, you know, perceived failures. Yet it's how she deals with them and how she overcomes it. And she's become stronger and tougher because of those circumstances. So I think that's what really makes her her unique and special and, and, and gives her her strength in a lot of ways. At the same time, it seems like there's a continuing theme, especially with the women on the show. There's such a rise and fall of emotion. And talk about all the loss that she actually oh, yeah. had to deal with in season two as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, well, even from the start with, you know, um, for season one, you know, her mother dying and then, um, you know, this relation and having to, you know, let go of, of Penny and then, you know, watching him dying at the end of the season. And, and then, you know, also the relationship with Julia and how that, you know, is failing. So there is a lot of loss that she's had to deal with. And, you know, she doesn't always cope with it in the, the best way, as we've seen. But um, every time I think it makes her stronger and it makes her more vulnerable. And I believe vulnerability is strength in a lot of ways and so yeah I think it's um, she's had to deal with a lot but she's a tough girl and she makes it through (laughs) okay I'm not going to make our fans wait anymore we're going to dive into season three and uh, we're going to tiptoe around this just a little bit so based on how last season (laughs) ended how much can you actually tell us about the state of Katie and Penny's relationship early in the season I mean well it, it starts off where it left off so we see Penny dying that's, you know, for, as, like, I'm just going to, you know, be as simple as possible um, and, and make that statement that he's, you know, he is essentially, you know, they call it super cancer. And you watch, um, you're watching him, him die. And it's, it is a really heart-wrenching thing to witness because, you know, you see, you finally see how deeply these two love each other. I think in the past you watch them resist that love and they're finally allowing themselves to, 
you know, fall head over heels in, in the depths of this. And then they're, they're faced with this dire circumstance. But the, the most challenging thing is watching somebody die and having no control over it. Mm-hmm. And I think the most beautiful thing about this show is they're able to create these really real scenarios while implementing these magical elements. So, you know, in life, this happens. Like I've had a lot of people pass in my, in my life where we have no control over it. And now that magic is gone, they really have no control over the outcome. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've said this before where I think a lot of these characters rely on magic and, and magic defines them. I think Katie is the one person that didn't have magic define her, nor did she rely on it. Cause it's like, you've seen before where magic didn't exist in certain circumstances. So did she just punch someone in the face? Yep. And knock them out? Yep. You know, she, <laughs> she was tough enough to deal with things without magic, but now that it's not there, I think it's, and, she, and the love of her life is dying in front of her eyes. It, it puts her in very extreme dire circumstances. So it is definitely an extreme start to the season. Can't tell you what happens. You're going to have to watch to see, but it is definitely heart-wrenching i'll put it that way talking to jay taylor who plays katie on the magicians of course you can see season three debuting on wednesday january the 10th now let's expand on that a little bit jade because we kind of see that there's going to be an epic quest to save magic this season do you kind of feel like katie's concerned about magic at all being gone or do you feel like her focus is kind of elsewhere you know i think i think she's absolutely concerned it's the first time that she really cares about it not because, and, but she cares for different reasons. Like everybody cares about magic because it's magic and mm. it's what, like I said, it's what drives them. With Katie, she cares because it's going to save someone. Like she was on that quest, of, you know, to, to kill Reynard because it was to save other people. Right. Everything that she does is actually has a lot of heart and it's to help others. You've seen that over and over again with her. And this is no different where she's fighting for magic because she knows that it's the only thing that could potentially save the love of her life. Looking through the characters coming up for season three, there was one that stood out to me, and I, when I saw it, I'm like, that is so that is so the magicians. Now, I mean, most people, dare will not speak its name, but I will. How much fun has it been to finally talk about the great cock? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that video. I couldn't get through this like interview video that they did for us because they just kept having to say it over and over again. Yeah. It's just like, I can't, I can't. It's so good. But but like you said, it's such a brilliant character. I mean, not just the name, which is hilarious. Um, and, but that's our, our, our writers and our creators. That is them to a T. It's oh, like creating I have no doubt. Yeah. magical elements, but with such a like a play on words. And like, oh, they're, they're just brilliant. But, um, but it's this, creature that you know gives us this quest for the entirety of the season and so it is a really important poignant character you know that that takes us on this crazy journey the quest that to get magic back now we know that the quest kind of involves finding keys and that's almost all we know about it and that and that's cool we'll find out on wednesday but what's something that you always seem to lose that you find yourself looking for i mean yeah, keys. <laughs> <laughs> Is it that simple? Um, just keys, keys. That's, that's actually keys. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> well, I have. Yeah, I have so many keys. That would be one. Yeah. No, I. Um, what did I lose? I don't really lose much, actually. Here, here's the question, enough. though. How many I, keys do you yeah. have that you don't know what they are? Because I've got like half of mine that I have no idea. Really? See, you don't want to know how many keys I have. But I know what every single one is. Wow. Because I have, I have three different. This is 
weird. I have three different homes right now, and I have a storage unit, and I have three different mailboxes. So imagine the amount of keys, and each one of them has about wow. four different locks to like get in. So I have a lot of keys. So I'd be I'd be so <laughs> it's, confused. It's fitting. <laughs> I make them different. Like one of my keys is a leopard key, so I know exactly what that nice. one's for. Nice. <laughs> you make them. You make them creative. <laughs> I feel like you've got a key um, for your keys somewhere, so you know what all of them are, just in case you forget. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, but so it's for me. Uh, keys have always been very symbolic because it you know unlocks the mysteries of you know what's behind the door, but also to life. And so it's. Um, I really loved being able to play into that this season and I think people are really going to love you know because each key symbolizes something different and that's all I will tell you um but it it not only symbolizes something different but does something different so it's it's exciting to discover as the characters were discovering what that was now so you talk- excited for everybody to go on a journey with us there you go. That's absolutely what's going to happen. Now, I've been very fortunate yeah. to talk to a lot of your fellow cast members since the show started. Now, is there anyone you wish you kind of had more scenes with or someone new that will get to see you interact with this season? Yeah, well, you know, it's fun. Um, I actually got to interact with um, with Trevor to Josh. So you see, I mean, Katie and Josh are, couldn't be more like of a dichotomy. And so it was so much fun to play that. So I think, I think the fans will, will enjoy that. Um, there's a lot because it's, you know, eight of us on this quest, there's a lot of us interacting together, which was really, really exciting, um, and fun because yeah, you get to see all of the characters together for once and working together yet. I haven't gotten to, Katie doesn't really go to Fillory very often. And so that for me, you know, I'd love to, Brittany is one of my, one of my best friends. And so I would love to play with her a little bit more. I don't think we've seen Katie and Katie and Finn together yet. So, be next season. That would definitely be a lot of fun. Now, I've got to yeah. ask you before I let you go. Last year, we talked to Summer Bischel before season two and asked mm-hmm. her to answer this. We asked her, if magic dies, then what? And at the time, she said, who cares? So, <laughs> that's such a summer comment. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, we kind of felt the same way. I love so, that. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you heading into season oh. three if magic cannot be restored, then what? Well, then you get to see these human beings being human. And I think that's the beauty of this season is you actually, you know, it's not just about magic. It's about human emotion and it's about relationships. And so for me, it's actually such a powerful season because you really get to see the heart of who these people are and what drives them. So I think that, you know, there's so much magic in that. And that's one of the reasons why we love The Magician so much and one of the reasons we're definitely going to be tuning in Wednesday night, January 10th on Sci-Fi. Make sure you're watching The Magicians. Keep binging Season 2 while you're at it and you'll be ready for Wednesday. It's Jay Taylor who plays Katie on The Magicians. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you. Such a pleasure. One of my favorite parts about Season 2 was Katie's character and everything that she went through and then reuniting with Penny only to find out that he's dying and she's just always been from the very beginning such not only just an interesting character but a badass character and she's just got this way about her that just makes you pay attention and gravitate towards her so much and she just captures the screen when she's on there so loving the fact that we're going to get more Katie in season three of the magicians and if you've seen some of the trailers 
haven't seen a whole lot of her in the trailers. She's been in some of the uh, the first look photos. So I like the fact that it's a little bit shrouded in mystery. What Katie's role is going to be and what's going to happen with with her and Penny going forward. So I love the fact that I've got that anticipation for season three of The Magicians. Make sure you're watching it Wednesday, January the 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern on Sci-Fi. If you're not on the East Coast, of course, check your local listings for that because it is going to be another amazing premiere, I'm sure. That's going to do it for this week's Down and Nerdy Podcast. You can always find more of the show at downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow us on social media as well, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. As always, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.